This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we have the great opportunity to talk uh, about one of the most important figures uh, of the last century, Mikhail Gorbachev, who just uh, recently passed away. And we're fortunate to have as our guest today, uh, William Taubman, who is the foremost biographer of Mikhail Gorbachev. He's also the foremost biographer of Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, He has uh, done more than any other historian I know to really unpack the history of Soviet leadership and the personalities at the top of the Soviet Union, uh, who in many ways um, influenced all elements of world politics over the last 50 to 75 years. Uh, William Talman is the Bertrand Snell Professor of Political Science Emeritus at Amherst College. And uh, as I said, he has written a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of uh, Nikita Khrushchev, a fantastic biography of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, which was published in 2017, which I think is even better than the Khrushchev book, uh, and uh, written about Stalin's foreign policy and various other issues. He's also a good friend, and it's a, it's a real pleasure to have him on. Bill, thank you for joining us. Glad to be there. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Bill Taubman, uh, we have, of course, our poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, this week's poem was, was pretty inspirational, huh, Zachary? I think so, yeah. Let's hear it. What Mikhail Thought Of I wonder what Mikhail thought of when he drifted off to sleep. If there was any space for doubt or fear or questions for the deep void of infamy. In his own town, they will probably spit on his bones. And yet the ghost of his courage roams our battlefields and bomb shelters that were never supposed to be. I wonder what Mikhail imagined would meet him on the other side. Can you still believe in history when you have ended it? Could he possibly be staring in the eyes of a cold, stone-faced Lenin looming over the stucco ceilings like a scarecrow? Or did he carry with him when his feet touched down on a floating cloud of paradise as a sort of housewarming gift? My father's memory of how his motorcade looked with its dark limousines on Lexington Avenue in 1988 between the cheering crowds. I do not know. When I was born, he was already a Pizza Hut commercial or perhaps a Cassandra And we thought of him with a quaint smile, as if it all were inevitable, as if the past would always stay dead. I do not know. But sleep well, Mikhail. You have earned it. Because you gave us freedom even when you didn't know it. Because you felt the promise, fever dream perhaps, of a future where your grandchildren would never have to look the cold, scattered bodies in their bloodied faces on the icy ground because you were brave enough to have shot yourself in the foot so we could all sleep well at night. No bombs fell then, and in our wildest dreams, we could sometimes imagine that the walls fell like dominoes in their place. Zachary, I'm so moved by your poem. What is it about? My poem is really about the the hope that Mikhail Gorbachev embodied and, and still embodies uh, in the minds of, of so many around the world, uh, but especially here in the United States. Um, 
but also the ways in which his legacy um, has has been tarnished in in recent months um, by the war in Ukraine and and the ways in which the the fight that in many ways he uh, willingly or unwillingly begun uh, still needs to be fought today. Yeah. Bill, uh, w- what made Mikhail Gorbachev stand out from other Soviet leaders? Why, why do we think of him differently? I'm tempted to say what did not make him <laughs> stand out from other. I mean, everything is the answer, almost everything. Uh, I guess the thing that was similar to other Soviet leaders was his ability to climb the greasy pole, the ladder of the Communist Party apparatus and end up as the boss, the leader of the Soviet Union. And in that process, he showed an ability to uh, maneuver within the bureaucracy, to engage in ruthless Kremlin infighting, to in the end perform the miracle of getting communist hardliners to briefly, unfortunately, vote themselves out of power and turn over power to broader masses of people who were given a right to vote freely and uh, and a, a genuine parliament rather than a rubber stamp Supreme Soviet. So those are some of the ways in which he was similar. But if he played that old game, as we might call it, it turned out he played it in order to invent and to create and to try to implement a new game, which was uh, a democratic Soviet Union with a parliament with free elections, with freedom of speech. Uh, and although that was, that in a way and still can inspire us and should and, and will, it also has to be admitted that he didn't play that new game as well as he played the old game. That is to say the people and forces that he freed from the old totalitarian restraints ended up overwhelming him and leading him to uh, leave office as the Soviet Union itself collapsed, which was also not something he had intended at all. And, and Bill, why do you think he was motivated uh, to, to be a reformer? This is one of the most compelling parts of your book. What, what drove him in this way? Well, that's where I think biography comes in. That is to say the whole story of the whole life because you can analyze his speeches to, uh, to describe his ideals and you can show him trying to implement them. But where did this man come up with all of this? Born in 1931, growing up under Stalinism, graduating from Moscow University in 1955, only two years after Stalin died. I think you have to go partly to his childhood and to his uh, parents particularly his father, who seems to have been, by all accounts, a particularly wonderful, open-minded man. Uh, You also have to go back to, I guess, his genes. In the midst of this horrible period of late Stalinism, this boy grows up to be a happy, confident, optimistic young man. Uh, And that optimism looms very large later, because without that optimism, you would never undertake the gargantuan task of reforming this country. Uh, Then he goes to Moscow University, which is filled with smart, uh, many of them idealistic students like him, 
and they did later become some of his closest allies and supporters. Um, and he marries a woman who is somewhat even, or is even more radical in some of her <laughs> hopes and dreams than he is. So you put together all of these things along with a little Jefferson that he read while he was at Moscow University. And uh, pardon, that's our puppy. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> anyway, you put all of this together and you get Gorbachev. And, and Bill, what was he trying to do? Because he remained uh, to the end, right, a, a, a communist, right? What, what was he trying to do? What were his reforms about? Well, you know, I think you have to admit that communism itself has an idealistic strand. I mean, to be sure, Stalin inherited the power that Lenin uh, collected for the Bolsheviks in 1917 and afterwards and used it to, commis to commit mass murder. But the idealistic strand, which was there in Marx and much less so in Lenin, but in a lot of communists I've gotten to know in the Soviet Union over the years, was this notion that they were building a better and potentially even perfect society in which people would be truly free, not only politically, but economically through the uh, production of abundance, which would mean that they would not be grubbing after their daily bread. Uh, so in that sense, he got a lot of this from communism. There were, there were others like him at various points in, the Soviet his, in Soviet history, but they were either repressed or overwhelmed or ignored by the hard-headed, cold-blooded Bolsheviks like Stalin himself. And if, if Gorbachev saw these problems so acutely, um, how was he able to to climb that greasy pole and make it to the top of a, of a system that, even if he could see its promise, uh, he, he also saw as incredibly broken? Well, for one thing, the leaders of that system, both at the very top and at middle levels through which he climbed toward the top, appreciated hard work. Uh, I think they even admired idealism because they knew too many people were cynical and later, many of them, the leaders, became cynical themselves. So they appreciated his hard work and they appreciated his idealism. And they thought that he would not take it to extremes. They, they observed his behavior and he was cautious. He kept uh, some of his ideals to himself. He, didn't, he and his wife did not welcome strangers into their household. They shared a lot of their thinking with their daughter, their only child. But they... They clearly taught her to keep her mouth shut when she was circulating more widely. So uh, Andropov, who uh, Yuri Andropov, the uh, powerful secret police chief who later became briefly Brezhnev's successor before he died and before Andropov quickly died, Andropov thought made Gorbachev into his protege. He was Gorbachev's patron. And I think he saw all of these characteristics, hard work, idealism, caution, uh, meticulousness. Plus, Gorbachev was a canny operator. I discovered stories, for example, how Gorbachev would, uh, would report to the top things that he had supposedly accomplished uh, in his local area, which he had not. <laughs> and, 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 and the people around him began to see that not only was he an admirable model in many ways, 
but he was also a tricky manipulator. Right. He knew how to play the game, as, yes, you, he as you would say. So, so uh, Bill, you not only have written about Gorbachev, you lived through this, uh, as as did I, as a, as a, a high school student, actually. Uh, you lived through this as a scholar, as someone who was visiting uh, the Soviet Union. Um, what was it like in the Gorbachev years? It's hard to convey, I think, to students uh, now what a difference, uh, how the world seemed to change so quickly with Gorbachev. Can, can you convey some of that to us? I made my first visit to the Soviet Union in the summer of 1964 on, an, on a Russian language study tour. I spent a year at Moscow University from in 65, 66, in the same law school that Gorbachev had graduated from a decade before. Then off and on over the years, I went back many times. But then beginning in 85, it began to change. And in 1988, my family and I spent five months in Moscow on the academic exchange. And we kept being bowled over by things that we hadn't expected to see, see or hear, which were happening before our eyes. For example, there was a movie that came out in 1988 made by a Georgian film director whose name I have forgotten, although my wife who was over here can... Who made the the Georgian film? Of, you know, we're both old Abu enough. Abuladze. Abuladze. It was a film about a, uh, a, a kind of dictator who looked a lot like Stalin and also resembled Hitler to some extent. He was Georgian, however. And, and the film uh, uh, sort of revealed him to be what he was, that kind of a dictator. And when that film came out in 1988, I think it was, if not 87, we couldn't believe that it had been allowed to see the light of day. I mean, it was the kind of film that never would have been released it would have been, to use the Soviet cliche term, shelved. Mm. That is, mm. if it were made at all, it would then be kept under guard for the rest of its life. And but, this was because it was so critical of Stalin. Yes, but there it was. We couldn't believe it. And a lot of the Russians, too, whom we were friendly with at that time, said they couldn't believe it either. It was a kind of symbol that something very basic was changing before our eyes and there were many other examples of things that couldn't be said that were suddenly said. Solzhenitsyn's Gulag was suddenly mm -hmm. published. Uh, Stalin was being criticized by Gorbachev himself, going far beyond what Khrushchev did in 1956 when he gave a secret speech to bunking Stalin. I mean, it was a new world. But even then, some of our very closest friends with whom we shared these insights when I called them on the phone, I remember one time I called somebody on the phone and he said, uh, I asked his impression of something that, uh, uh, of a sort of revolutionary development like this. And he said in Russian, <laughs> this we don't talk about on the right. phone. Right, right. And, and why do you think, Bill, that um, Gorbachev was, was so... Um, uh, extraordinarily well received in the West. I remember I've been talking to people about this. I remember being in New York City when he visited in December 1988 for this extraordinary speech at the United Nations, uh, where he discussed how the Soviet Union was going to unilaterally uh, reduce its forces in Europe, and and he was treated like a rock star in New York. Why do you think that was? 
Well, first of all, the speech itself, if you go back and read that speech, not only did he say he was going to reduce forces unilaterally, but he said in almost so many words that he believed in the consent of the governed. Yes. And that was a clear signal that East Europe was, uh, if not immediately, then eventually going to be, uh, well, maybe not liberated, but certainly eased up on and and even released. Uh well, I guess what I'm saying is that the West as a whole and its political leaders reacted in, in a large way as I, re, I and my wife and our family reacted in Moscow on, in 88. Gorbachev was saying and doing things they couldn't imagine. I remember uh, reading the transcripts of the Reykjavik summit in 86, uh, where Gorbachev and Reagan came within an inch of agreeing to abolish nuclear weapons. And I remember coming upon uh, things that Paul Nitza, who was the hardline negotiator that Reagan had chosen to, among others, to work with him in negotiating with Gorbachev. And Nitza said something like, I can't believe it. I've never heard this kind of thing <laughs> from these Russians, these Soviets. So if Gorbachev was such a such a hero in the West, or at least such such an important figure, someone viewed on with uh, admiration, uh, how how can we explain or, or seek to understand uh, how he's viewed in Russia today, but also uh, at the time in the early 90s, late 1980s? The first thing you have to say is that until 1990, Gorbachev was viewed with great admiration and delight in the Soviet Union itself. Of course, there were people who were scared of what he was doing. There were colleagues in the Politburo who thought he was going too far. But it was only in the second half of 1990 that Gorbachev ceased to be the most popular politician in Russia and was superseded by Boris Yeltsin, who eventually replaced him when the Soviet Union collapsed. So uh, what that tells you is that a lot of Russians hoped and prayed, or didn't, maybe didn't pray, that Gorbachev would be successful in carrying out the reforms, which were no longer reforms, actually. They became radical steps by 1988 that he had begun. But also by, by 1989, by 1990, the economic situation had drastically worsened. Uh, people had hoped he would be able to cure that. Instead, they found themselves lining up again for food at long, long lines at stores. And um, uh, the, the, the situation uh, in the, in the, even in the streets, in the sense that national nationalities, non-Russians and the republics began agitating for more autonomy and then ultimately independence and sovereignty in the Baltics, in Georgia, uh, in in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an Armenian enclave of Azerbaijan. And people, the Russians were, were made, and force was used in some cases, Gorbachev tried to avoid the use of force, but in some cases to repress them. People began to worry about stability, which had always meant a lot to Russians. They began to worry about disorder. Besparyadok is the Russian word. They had always valued order. And so they began turning against Gorbachev. And some of his virtues began to seem to them to be shortcomings. For example, after Brezhnev, who could barely speak, he was so old and ill, Gorbachev was a marvelously articulate and eloquent speaker. 
but he talked a lot. <laughs> and he talked, in fact, too much. And by 1990, 91, people began to treat him and to refer to him as a kind of, the Russian word is baltoon, somebody who talks too much. Right. Uh, so his virtues began to seem defects in the eyes of many Russians. And Bill, did he see what came of the former Soviet Union after its collapse? Did, did he see that as, as a failure of his hopes? How, how did he understand uh, the 20, 30 years he lived after his time in power? That's a very good question, Jeremy, because I think he struggled with that question. He struggled to understand what happened. He struggled to understand his own contribution to it. Like almost any human being, he was reluctant to decide he was a failure or that he had caused the troubles that got worse, even worse under Yeltsin, who carried out shock, economic shock therapy, which made the economy even worse off. Uh, I think he struggled with that. I remember talking to him and, and about the question of whether he had moved too fast to change the Soviet Union or too slowly. And at the time, he felt he had moved too slowly. But later, in later years, he would say he had moved too fast. And he would even go so far to say that it would take decades to democratize Russia and that it might even take the whole 21st century. But, you know, it was hard for him to admit this. Uh, there was a wonderful documentary film made very late in his life maybe three, two or three years ago, three or four years ago, by two Russians. One was a filmmaker named Vitaly Mansky. The other was a playwright named Alexander Gelman. And the film is called, in English, Gorbachev.Heaven, <laughs> which is a play on, I guess, what would be a, um, a, a, um, an e-address, email address mm -hmm. or website. But it was really about... And what the film showed in long uh, interviews, Gorbachev was already weak and frail, but his mind was clear. And what he was doing was trying to come to some kind of judgment of what he had ultimately accomplished and not accomplished and why. And the one of the ironies in the film was that as he spoke, as he was interviewed by these two uh, Russians, a television was playing in the background. You couldn't hear it, but it was showing the, the picture. And the picture was Putin hmm. addressing somebody or not or, or a, a, a parliament or something. Was, so the comment was that even as Gorbachev wrestled with what he had done and not done, the man who was on television commanding this, the stage was Putin. Well, and I, I think that begs the natural question, uh, Bill, what do you think Gorbachev's legacy is, especially at a moment now where we're um, witnessing one of the most brutal and uh, dictatorial wars we've seen uh, any country fight in Europe uh, really since World War II, uh, led by Gorbachev's successor? Well, you know, if even in the last 24 hours since we learned that Gorbachev had died, I've been struck by how many of the Tributes are all tribute. Uh, people are, this is in the West, of course. People are, well, justly inspired by what he had tried to do uh, and want to emphasize the positive. 
On the other hand, I have heard talking to Russians whom I greatly respect, intellectuals, professors, some of whom have fled to the West, both before the Ukrainian war began and even more now. I've heard uh, judgments which are mostly negative. And I guess my own judgment is that, it w- that Gorbachev's legacy is both. The inspiration that he provides to try to create a better country and a better world and to take the chances of doing it in a big way, even when there is the possibility of failure. Uh, and on the other hand, the failure to succeed in everything he wanted to accomplish, which underlines just how hard it is to change countries for the better and to change the world. So that is what I see as his legacy. It's a combination of, of the inspiration that he inspires by what he attempted and the caution uh, that he is, is created by how it turned out. That makes a lot of sense. Our, our, our last question, Bill, um, is a question we often ask uh, week after week with, with different scholars and policy uh, experts and others on our show. Uh, what from this history, what from this extensive work you've done as, the, as really the foremost uh, scholar of Gorbachev, certainly the foremost scholar of Gorbachev in the United States, what are lessons for students today, students who are interested in, in making the world a better place, who want to reform our society and want to reform international politics? What lessons would you take from, from your scholarship? Well, I, I guess the first lesson is, is that it is worth studying a man like Gorbachev and his, what he tried to accomplish and where he fell short and why. One of the things I've learned, and maybe this is my bias because I've turned in my old age into a biographer after starting life as a political scientist, uh, um, one of the things I've learned is how important certain leaders can be. And I think it's not accidental, another Soviet phrase, that both both the Soviet leaders I've written biographies of, Khrushchev and Gorbachev, were decisive and that their decisive actions were reflected the fact that they were unique. That is, in the sense, they did what others would not have done in their place. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Khrushchev's case, it was, I'll give you one good example and one awful example. Well, a good example was denouncing Stalin, which I think nobody else would have done with the possible exception of police chief Beria, who was totally cynical. And the other thing that Khrushchev did that I think none of his colleagues would have done was to send missiles to Cuba. Right. None of them wanted to do that, but he didn't really ask them. So he was unique. And Gorbachev was unique in the sense that he went much farther than almost any of his colleagues wanted to go. There were two, three, or three who stayed with him to the end, but they were only in a position to do so because he either put them in power alongside him or kept them there. So what I'm saying is... Leaders can be decisive, and their decisive impact on events can reflect their uniqueness. Now, this doesn't mean that the rest of us should just sit on our haunches and watch (laughs) what they do, especially in a democracy where we're invited to take part and certainly must do so. But I guess one thing I've learned is how important certain leaders can be for good or ill when they fit when they have the power, as Gorbachev did, to make great changes, 
and they have the uniqueness to try to make changes that nobody else would. It's such a powerful point, Bill. Uh, I, I hear you saying that um, who we choose as leaders uh, when we're fortunate enough to live in a society where we get to have some choice, it's an absolutely crucial decision. And, and who who steps forward? I mean, the, these, these issues matter enormously and perhaps we don't take them seriously enough. Perhaps we choose based on, on the wrong attributes, not on the attributes you've studied. Uh, and I'll, even, I'll, I'll give you an example without naming names, but <laughs> I'll ask your listeners, can you think of a recent American president who has, an, has had an important impact on his society and who did things in office which few, if any, other people would have done because he had a certain kind of personality? Hint, hint. Right, right. <laughs> Zachary, before we close, I, I want to give you a chance. You, in your poem, you so eloquently uh, have the refrain, uh, but sleep well, Mikhail, you have earned it. Uh, what, what did you mean by that? And, and, and do you, connecting that to what Bill has shared with us, do you, do you see Mikhail Gorbachev's legacy as one that's useful and inspirational for young people like yourself? I think so. Um, for me, what has struck me about the past few days is is that that um, it's hard for someone who was born long after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union to to understand what the world was like uh, before 1991. And I think what Gorbachev shows us is that um, the world that we live in uh, can change very quickly, uh, and and sometimes it it does depend on on individuals and the decisions they make. Um, and I think he also shows that you have to you have to you have to infiltrate the system before you can change it right. too. The long march through the institutions. Right. Uh, Bill Taubman, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Your insights have have inspired and enlightened us. Um, thank you, Bill. Well, Jeremy, I'd like to say that you are the kind of questioner who brings out interesting answers. I've been interviewed uh, in the last twenty four hours. I don't know how many times, thirty or forty times. Uh, and this, I think, was, I feel as if it was the most successful because uh, of how good you were at uh, posing questions. Well, the, the secret, Bill, is having uh, great guests and having a great partner in Zachary here. <laughs> Zachary, thank you for your moving poem. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time. <laughs>